Welcome to Democracy Matters, the podcast of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University. I'm Dr. Kara ong Associate Director at the Madison Center, and joining me is Dr. Abe Goldberg, Executive Director of the Madison Center. Hi, welcome Hi. to the show. We also have another special co-host with us, Ethan Gardner. He's graduating from James Madison University with a degree in political science uh, and just finished his honors thesis as well as he has been chair of the Student Government Association Legislative Affairs Committee and a democracy fellow here at the Madison Center. Hi, Ethan. Hi. Our guest today on Democracy Matters is Senator Scott Suravel, who represents parts of Fairfax, Prince William, and Stafford counties in the Virginia Senate. He was elected in, in 2015 and was sworn in in January 2016. Um, he is a graduate of James Madison University in 1993, magna cum laude, with degrees in political science and American studies. And he also served as the student vice president and in the student senate here at James Madison University. Thank you so much for joining us today, Senator it's fun to be back virtually. So this was the first session that Democrats have held the majority in both chambers of the General Assembly and the governorship in Virginia for 25 years. I wonder if you can start by telling us about how politics and the legislative process have changed this year and how the shift in control altered debate, debate on legislation and the ability to address issues facing Virginians. Yeah, well, it was uh, it was definitely a historic session. Um, you know, I've served in the legislature now for this was my 11th session. And when I started, we had the Democrats in the House of Delegates had 39 seats. After the 2011 election, we went down to 32. And uh, when I left the House back in 2015, we had 34. And uh, the whole time I was in the Senate, we were in the minority by one vote. But, you know, when you only have 34, 32 members out of 100, it's really hard to set the agenda or get anything done. And, and there's really just not a whole lot of uh, debate or compromise about, about uh, major issues. Uh, the, um, the change in control this year was just, it's historic. And as you said, it's the first time we've had a democratic alignment between the governor and both chambers, I think in 26 years, maybe it's 25. Um, but it definitely changed the uh, policy priorities, the budgeting priorities. Um, we had new leadership. Obviously, we had the first uh, woman speaker of the House of Delegates, including the first speaker ever from Fairfax County. Um, we had uh, Dick Saslaw has been our majority leader before in the Senate. So that, that wasn't new. But we had a whole range of new committee chairs, um, a lot more uh, women, a lot more diversity in our committee chairs a lot more regional uh, representation from Northern Virginia and Hampton Roads, which uh, has not always been the case, mainly from Northern Virginia. There have been some Hampton Roads chairs through the years. Um, but at, at a policy level, you know, I'd, we had a lot of things that, that we wanted to undo that occurred in the last 10 years. And then we had a lot of stuff that we wanted to do. <laughs> and, um, you know, it was just, it was a whole, whole range of it. It ran the gamut. Um, much more of a focus on the environment, criminal justice reform, um, voter uh, voting reforms, which I think we're going to talk about soon, uh, rebalancing the relationships between employers and employees, uh, a lot of stuff coming through the Judiciary Committee that you never would have seen before, um, sort of refocus on education equity, budgeting equity, uh, transportation funding was transform transformed this session. I mean, it was a really historic session where we, we did bills that would have been 
you know, like a, a major accomplishment one, one for one session. It was like, okay, what, you know, that was like a regular Thursday or something. So it was really, it was really different. Can you give us a sense of what the Commonwealth of Virginia is doing to prepare for elections this year to ensure they're safe, secure, and accessible? Most people probably don't realize that we actually have three elections left this year. We already had one in March, which was the presidential primary. We have uh, town and city elections that are scheduled in May. Uh, we tried to move those, but um, or the governor tried to move those, which I supported, but that didn't happen. So we're going to have elections um, in about, I think it's about 13 days from today. Then we have our June primary or June partisan primary for con congressional seats and for the U.S. Senate. Then we have November. So uh, in terms of the May election, the, the Department of Elections, I believe, has issued guidance to localities to how to protect poll workers and how to protect voters. At least in Fairfax County, the average poll worker is 72 years old. I'm not sure what the average is statewide, but um, I know they're they're um, issuing guidance about how to protect those workers and how to protect voters and how to space out voters when they vote. Um, they're trying to implement protocols, I think, to ensure that um, personal contact is is minimized during the voting process. If people have their space, um, that guidance, I believe, came out this week. In terms of the June election, uh, the June partisan primaries, uh, and actually, by the way, the governor moved the May and June elections backwards by two weeks, which he has statutory authority to do. Um, so he's already moved the May elections back, which is the date I just talked about. The June elections, he moved back to, I believe, June, the Tuesday, the last Tuesday in June. And um, the attorney general's office just reached an agreement with the, I think it was the ACLU in litigation yesterday or was approved by the court yesterday, uh, allowing the waiver of witness requirements on absentee ballot applications for the June election. I wouldn't be surprised if we see a similar agreement for November, but I don't think litigation has started over that yet. Um, and I know that at least there's discussions about trying to encourage as much voting by mail as we can. Uh, they're still trying to tease out sort of what their statutory authority is in terms of some people would like us to mail out absentee ballot applications to every single voter. That's going to cost a lot of money, which hasn't been budgeted. And um, it's not clear statutorily whether that can happen or not, but that, that might be a discussion for the special session coming up or uh, again, we might find out a way to do it, but those are, those are a few of the things that we're doing. You mentioned uh, Senator Servell, the average age of poll workers was, did you say 72 years old? In Fairfax County, it's 72. I, I don't know what it is statewide. There was a recent call from directly from the governor's office encouraging college students to consider serving as poll workers in upcoming elections. Um, given that that population is considered to be at lower risk for the uh, COVID-19 spread. I think it would be a great idea. I mean, we're definitely going to have poll workers in demand. Uh, you know, there's a lot of precincts around the state that need to be filled. Most people don't realize you actually do get paid for doing it. Yeah, I saw that announcement, um, and I actually signed up myself as a, as a college student um, in Prince William County because uh, it seems like they're doing all of their training and stuff online. I believe that form's still active on the Virginia Elections website. So you mentioned a, a great deal of uncertainty um, as to not only elections, but just institutions, public spaces in general. 
Um, when are things going to open? What are the new protocols going to be? What new norms will be established? All of this during a census and election year. What options do you think should be pursued with regards to voting during this pandemic? Again, given, given the uncertainty and that we're operating with such incomplete information right now and given the severity of this pandemic. Yeah, you know, I've always been a, a, um, a very vocal advocate for voting by mail. Uh, and uh, in Virginia, it's called absentee voting. But, um, you know, in Virginia right now, you, most just about everybody can vote by mail. You have to have a reason. You have to have a reason until pretty soon, but until July 1. But it's been hard to get people to actually do it. Um, starting this election, um, no excuse absentee voting is going into effect, which means that um, after this June election, for the presidential election in November, you're no longer going to need to have an excuse in order to vote by mail. And uh, I don't think there's any reason that anyone should not do it. Uh, the, um, the application can be done electronically. Uh, there's a there's a, a 501c4 that has set up an online application, which you can complete on a website in about two minutes or on your phone. Uh, that's called eabsentee.org. The State Department of Elections also has its own site. That takes a little bit longer to fill out because it has to have triple authentication. You got to go through a bunch of screens and stuff. But uh, if you fill out either of those forms, you get your ballot back. They'll mail them out around September 27th, and you have about uh, you have to get it in by election day, basically. Actually, you have to get it now. We three days after the election, after this session we just passed. But you have to get the ballot, mail the ballot back in, and you know you have plenty of time to fill it out at home, do your research, think it over. Um, but I think everybody ought to vote by mail. Um, that's that's the absolute safest way to, um, to to vote in this election, especially given that we don't know where this pandemic is going to be. It's also possible, by the way, to go down to your registrar's office and vote in person absentee early where the crowds might be a little smaller, but you have to go have, you know, human face-to-face -face interaction to do that. And you never know what the lines are going to be like. You also can't do that until the ballot, until the election goes live, which is usually mid to late September. So, um, but you can actually apply for an absentee ballot for the November election today. You can apply for the June primary and for the November election today. There's absolutely nothing, no reason you can't make your application today. The ballot will just come mid to late September in your, in your mailbox. We, we've seen as there's been more discussion during the pandemic about extending access um, that is both safe and secure for the public, um, also increasing partisan divides about making more options available. Um, even though we know from scholarly research by mail specifically, don't really advantage one party over another. I wonder how you address partisan concerns about accessibility and voter fraud. I mean, first of all, that, that assumes there's um, voter fraud. <laughs> and that's that's been a big bone of partisan contention the entire 11 years I've served in the legislature and probably goes back further than that. I mean, the actual documented cases of of actual voter fraud, that is people trying to cast ballots dishonestly, is basically slim to none. And as far as I can tell, the only actual example of that that, that I'm aware of is the um, recent election in um, North Carolina involving Congressman Mark Harris, who was a conservative Republican who hired a guy who went out and 
had a team of people who gathered up absentee ballots for him and then he they all signed them and sent them back in mass um and that's the only case i'm aware of a sort of voter impersonation that's been documented in a long time um so the uh from my experience and from all the evidence that I've ever seen, voter fraud just doesn't exist a lot because most people are not willing to commit a felony uh, to cast a vote. Um, usually mass voter fraud requires the agreement of numerous people and, and getting a bunch of people to agree to commit voter fraud, commit a bunch of felonies, go to jails is really hard. Um, I will say, though, that with regard to the absentee ballot application process, um, I believe that the electronic application process is actually much more secure than the paper process because if somebody submits their absentee ballot application electronically, uh, then um, you know the date it was submitted, you know the time it was submitted, you know the IP address that was submitted, which can usually be traced back to a house or unless somebody does something sophisticated on the other end, um, you have a, a, a data trail as to when and how that, that ballot was prepared. Um, you also have to know certain personal information in order to complete it, including the last four of your social, a birthday, that kind of stuff. Um, and um, I think these electronic absentee things prevent voter fraud. You know, when you compare it with like a paper application, if somebody just fills out a paper absentee ballot application, you don't know who filled it out, when they filled it out, where they filled it out. All you know is you get this piece of paper in the mail one day. So um, I think that our, our growing electronic systems will help actually prevent fraud on the absentee side. The threat of criminal prosecution will prevent fraud. And um, um, the uh, I just don't think anybody's going to walk down to a polling place to impersonate somebody to, to commit a felony and vote one person at a time. I just don't see that as being a, a plausible scenario, especially in numbers that will cause an election to change. You know, and actually, if you look at in Virginia, if you look at historically, some of the most Republican jurisdictions in Virginia actually have the highest sort of regular usage of absentee balloting. Uh, down in Southwest Virginia, they have a lot of people that cast their votes absentee in every single election. In Northern Virginia, it kind of uh, rises and falls and presidential cycle will get up to, at least before this year, we're getting up to like one in four, one in five ballots cast um, absentee. But uh, when you when we don't have that going on, it's usually closer to like one in ten. But downstate, down in the southwest part of Virginia, which has become very conservative, they vote by mail a lot. Um, clearly, our military has been voting by mail, I believe, since like the Civil War, uh, and that population in general, I think, trends Republican. Um, so, you know, I don't, I'm not, I'm not sure what the where the paranoia comes from. Everything I've been reading lately suggests that. If anything, um, President Trump has been getting a lot of people to vote for him that haven't really been voting a lot. And uh, I would think voting by mail would sort of benefit both parties equally. Another major piece of legislation that was passed this year was same-day voter registration. And that won't take effect until 2022. But I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that legislation and how you think it will impact um, accessibility. I think a lot of people don't fully appreciate what that is. Um, we do. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in my experience, you know, I mean, I've knocked about 25,000 doors in my five elections now, only three of which have really been contested. But, but you know, a lot of times when I run into somebody at the door, I'll knock, I'll say, is so-and-so home? They're like, no, and they don't live here anymore. And I'll be like, are you registered to vote? And they say, yeah. 
like, well, you're not on my list. They go, well, I just moved here or what I mean. The vast majority of people who, who need to, quote, register, close quote, to vote, what they really need to do is update their address. Um, I mean, I, was, I mean, there's obviously a good number of people who, who just need to register. Maybe they moved in from out of state. Maybe they just turned 18. Um, you know, I know, I know a lot of people, a lot of students at JMU are now registering to vote uh, on campus, which wasn't as much the case as there 25 years ago. But um, but there's a lot of people who move around that need to change their address. And about the last thing they think to do is to update their voter registration. And where that plays out is when they show up on Election Day to try and vote. They, they discover that they're not on the list. And then all this confusion ensues about whether you're supposed to vote here or your old precinct. And, you know, a lot of times these people are showing up at like four or five in the afternoon. It's too late to go. Then they have to cast a ballot provisionally. And in order to cast your ballot provisionally, there's all this documentation you have to provide. And sometimes you have to come back to the canvas the next day. And so a lot of times those votes just don't get counted. And so um, I think that um, uh, pushing the – and also right now, today, you, you can only register up until three weeks before the election and then the books close. I think being allowing people to register right up until Election Day and then on Election Day at the registrar's office will go a long way towards ensuring that everybody who wants to vote gets to vote. And right now, just a lot of people don't think about dealing with it or think about making their plan or anything until like the day before, two days before or, or the day of. So, uh, you know, I think it'll definitely that bill will probably result in maybe a one or two percent increase in the number of votes getting cast, maybe more. And, you know, some people say, so what? You know, I mean, I think in the of course, in the 2017 election, the control of the House of Delegates was determined by a coin flip. Right. I mean, if one more student at JMU had, you know, filled out an absentee application and mailed a, a ballot back into Newport News, there would have been a tied House of Delegates and a whole different whole different policy situation coming out of Richmond for the, from 2017 to 2019. But um, I've also, in addition to that election, I've, I've seen probably in the 11 years I've been elected, um, at least 10 elections that have been decided by 100 votes or less, or like less than 1%. So, you know, every year there's elections that are close and every every vote does count, really does. And, uh, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that 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 bill and that process will help us get a more representative democracy. Every vote does count. Um, thank you for saying that explicitly in this conversation. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about the, the census. Um, COVID-19 has prompted the U.S. Census Bureau to delay the deadline for census collection in order to get an accurate count of the U.S. population. Senator, how will this adjusted timeline affect Virginia's ability to redistrict their state legislative and congressional districts, given that we have a gubernatorial race and state elections in 2021? First of all, I guess the U.S. Census has now petitioned Congress and asked Congress for permission to delay the reporting of the data that they eventually collect. Uh, it's not clear yet whether Congress is going to acquiesce to that or not, but, um, but right now we're waiting to see whether that happens. Um, the data I've seen so far says that I think in Virginia, about 60 to 65 percent of the census questionnaires have been responded to. So there's about 
that leaves, you know, about um, 35 to 40% of Virginians that have not been counted yet. And they can't be counted typically until you send out canvassers in the field to go talk to people. And right now, nobody's willing to go out and talk to anybody because they don't want to catch a disease that could kill them. So we'll see. First of all, we'll see if what Congress does on the deadline. Um, but right now, what typically happens in a typical year, we get back the data around February 1, the census data. We get February 1 of the year after the census. And... And then that data has to be processed. We typically call a special session of the General Assembly, usually in March. And that usually takes about a week in which we draw new districts. And, and then um, we have uh, partisan primaries in uh, August and then the election in November. Um, however, everything's all mixed up this year because there's a constitutional amendment pending to create a new nonpartisan or so-called nonpartisan uh, redistricting commission, which would draw the districts. And first of all, we have to see if that constitutional amendment passes on the ballot this November. There's also some complexities associated with that, which we don't get into if you want to. But, but in any event, um, nobody can do anything until they have data. And if we don't get the data back in time to draw the districts, have primaries, and then do the districts for the election, uh, it, it, it'll be unprecedented. Um, and just so you have a sense of the logistics involved, you know, sometimes people say, well, you know, I've seen a special election happen on six weeks notice. It's not that simple um, because the primaries that we'll need to have for the 140 legislative seats have to be state run primaries, which means that like a general election, because they're run by the state, the ballot has to be finalized as of a certain date. The books are shut. Well, the books aren't going to be shut anymore because same day registration, but the ballot's going to be set. Then balloting opens and there's about a 45 day period to vote. So, you know, you need at least um, 60 days out. You have to have your nominees picked at least 60 to 70, 80 days out from the election day. And then after that, you have to have a period of time to vote. So, I mean, if we don't get this data by probably like, you know, May 1, or June 1, I, I'm not sure how we're going to be able to have an election in new districts by November. And there's been other years when um, the courts have found their districts were drawn illegally. Like, for example, in 1981, the legislature created these multi-member districts to dilute minority voting, and the courts blew all that up. And they actually ended up having elections three years in a row. I think it was 81, 82, and 83 for the House of Delegates. And so uh, it's possible that we could have elections in 2021, 22, and 23 for the Virginia State Legislature, not for the Senate. The Senate's not scheduled to go until 23, but the House could go three years in a row. And it really all depends on when we get that data back from the U.S. Census. I mean, um, and right now we just don't know when we're going to get it. Um, and once, once that happens, there's probably going to need to be court involvement and court approval uh, to schedule whatever happens because our constitution is explicit about when we need to have this and it's going to become just it could become logistically impossible. So there's a lot of uncertainty around all that right now. So for the general assembly, like you referenced, uh, passed 
two year, I believe two years in a row legislation for an amendment to the Constitution of Virginia to create an independent commission that would draw districts for both congressional and state legislative seats, obviously contingent on census data. Um, the commission, as, as it stands, will consist of eight legislators and eight citizens, and the amendment will now be on the ballot for voters in November. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about how this independent commission will work and um, why there was some opposi- why there was some op- opposition within uh, your party uh, about this commission? I'll try to generally describe it, but the basically what hap- what's going to happen or what's supposed to happen if this amendment passes is that there'll be a commission that's put together of legislators, citizens, and uh, there'll be some involvement of some retired circuit court judges and. It's designed so that no political party has any type of um, majority on the thing. In addition to that, um, so for example, in the Senate, I think there's two senators from each party. There'll be four senators, two from each party that, that are on that are on the commission. Then the House, it's the same thing, two from each party, uh, and um, and then there'll be an equal number of citizens. However, in order to pass a plan, the uh, it requires a supermajority to pass any kind of redistricting plan. And if um, two members of either legislative body vote no, then uh, the plan doesn't pass. And so what that means is that two Democrats or two Republicans from either chamber could block a plan if they don't like it. Um, and that's actually one of the big objections some people have, uh, which I'll go back to in a second. But um, – but if that plan can passes, then that plan gets sent to the legislature, who then has to vote it up or down. Legislature cannot amend it. They can only vote it up or down. And uh, the reason that's required or the reason that, that was built in was because the United States Constitution states that the um, congressional districts have to be drawn by state legislatures. And in the last major redistricting case that was heard by the U.S. Supreme Court, there was a concurring opinion that had four votes minus Anthony Kennedy um, that said that nonpartisan redistricting commissions were unconstitutional because they were not state legislatures. And now that Kennedy's been replaced by Kavanaugh, some people speculate that that sentiment would be a majority so that's why we involve the state legislature in blessing what the nonpartisan commission is going to do. Um, in the event that either the legislature rejects the plan or, as I said, the, the commission cannot get a supermajority or two members veto a plan, then the redistricting gets thrown to the Supreme Court of Virginia, who would then be tasked with um, – drawing the maps and the constitutional amendment doesn't provide a whole lot of guidance there about the the mechanics of that. It just says the Supreme court does it. So that's basically what the amendment would do. And again, with there's a lot of confusion now because of the census timelines. I don't think a lot of people assume that the census data would ever be delayed because it hasn't been delayed in, you know, 200 and some years, but it is likely to be delayed. So, um, there was a, a large group of uh, members who opposed it. And by the way, I was one of them. The, the amendment passed the House of Delegates, I think it was about 50, 51, 49, or 53, 47, something like that. It passed the Senate 38 to 2, and I was one of the two. So 
Um, there's a couple of different objections, uh, problems with it. Um, my biggest problem is that the criteria that the the criteria that the commission is required to follow in order to draw the districts is going to be put in the code of Virginia. And we did pass a bill this year setting out criteria, and I didn't have a problem with the criteria bill we passed. The problem is that if we have a future change in partisan control, you know, we have Republicans controlling things up and down, they could adopt a new criteria bill, which effectively requires a Republican gerrymander by the commission. And there are, you know, there's lots of different variables that you could throw into a criteria bill that benefit one party over the other. And, and by the way, we, we couldn't get a single Republican vote for our criteria bill this year. <laughs> and I strongly felt that the criteria belongs in the Constitution, not in the Code of Virginia. And the, um, the, the criteria is really sort of the central point of dispute. And, and nobody could reach an agreement about the criteria, which is why it's not in the Constitutional Amendment. And so I feel like this new process we're creating just potentially shifts the gerrymandering from the legislature to some commission. And um, other people tell me that, you know, no, everybody's going to say cooler minds will prevail. People will be sane. You put them all in a commission, they'll all be reasonable. Um, and, you know, I'm not I'm not entirely optimistic about that. So anyways, that was my problem. That was that's the biggest problem I had. Secondly, a lot of people don't trust the Supreme Court. Supreme Court has, has been picked largely by the Republicans over the last 20 years. It has a Republican majority right now. Some people don't trust them to draw it. Um, that was, and then there's also a lack of guarantees of minority representation on the commission. There's nothing in the constitutional amendment that requires minority representation or, or for that matter, regional representation. Like the entire commission could be people from Hampton Roads or Southside or whatever it could be. I doubt that'll happen, but that could. Um, and, um, there's a couple other little things. I mean, some people think that, that, the the two member veto is like a poison pill, like just two members will send it to the Supreme court every time, as long as they think the Supreme court will draw it in their favor. Um, so there's a couple other minor issues as well. People have, but, uh, the, the last piece of uncertainty is that this session, you know, when you pass a constitutional amendment, that's, you know, that's great. It goes in the Constitution, but you typically also pass enabling legislation in the Code of Virginia that further fleshes things out. And our disagreements were so bad this session that we couldn't even agree on enabling legislation. So there's nothing in the code that describes what this commission is going to do um, that further fleshes out the details. So, for example, there was one bill that required a, a, a another group to start working on redistricting and taking testimony and hearings this November, all the way up until when the commission first started to meet in March, that bill got killed. There was another, and that, and that bill was supposed to make recommendations to the commission. I mean, that group was going to make recommendations to the commission that got killed. Um, the, um, there's some open government type stuff that could go with this commission about, you know, how transparent they do their stuff that all got, that didn't pass. Uh, there were some bills that taught that, that would direct the Supreme court how to draw, if they have to draw, all that got killed. Uh, it just, and so we might end up taking up some of this stuff in special session later this year. We'll see. Well, thank you so much for, for joining us, Senator Scott Cervell. We have one final question that we ask all of our guests. What would you do to strengthen democracy? Before this year, I would have said, you know, have a real uh, nonpartisan redistricting, but... <laughs> um, 
I um, I mean, when I, I truly believe in nonpartisan redistricting. I just don't believe the way we've we've proposed it really works very well. I think I think you know personally, if I were to do it, I would have a a, a computer do it. When I would I would I would have in the Constitution a certain compactness factor, which is a mathematical factor, a contiguity factor, and I would have a vote a vote waste formula, which which you know there's a there's a mathematical um, process that was come up with by some. Um, outside professor experts that talk about designing districts using computers and math in a way that uh, sort of maximize representation by reflecting what you traditionally see in terms of partisan voting outcomes. And I think there's there's ways, and you can honor the Voting Rights Act. I think computers could do all this and then we leave it up to people to, to manipulate boundaries by like, you know, two or three percent or something like that on some commission. I think that's the best way to go with my, my view didn't carry. But Anyway, redistricting reform is a huge part of this because of our, our current system. Districts are drawn so partisan that it tends to push everybody to extremes because they tend to cater to their primary voters instead of the general electorate. And anyways, we've taken a step towards that in Virginia. You know, the, the jury's out as to whether this will improve things or not. We'll see. It'll probably take four or five, ten years to figure that out. But um, it's it's that's that's to me, redistricting is one big, big, big fundamental problem. Second big fundamental problem, I think, is campaign finance. And unfortunately, I don't I don't see a, a lot of ways to really deal with that until we undo the Citizens United case. And the uh, U.S. Supreme Court has basically said that that money is is speech under the First Amendment. And until and the corporations are people for purposes of the First Amendment. And so that until until that constitutional law changes, our remedies are really limited, I think, as to what we can do to effectively address the involvement of money in our politics. Um, some states have done public financing of campaigns, which I think could help, but that still doesn't prevent extremely wealthy people from coming in and, and spending their own money in an election, which can be a real problem. So um, anyways, I think, I think that is a, to be a huge fix. Uh, two other things I would say is, um, in Virginia at least, I think if we would align our state and local elections with the federal cycle, it would go a long way towards maximizing participation and voters' focus. I mean, right now in Virginia, we have an election every single year. Then you have a year like this year where we have a presidential primary, local elections, partisan primaries, and a general election in November. And I, you know, I, people just don't want to vote that much. Like um, having four elections in a year, you know, throwing a special election here and there, it's just it's it's a lot for people to process. And um, and I think if we were to focus people down to you know primaries every other June and elections every other November, we would get a more engaged electorate and um, and more participation. And you know, the last thing I would just say is education. You know, education has always been shown to you know, I think increase voter participation. And I think the more that we can invest in our education system, the more people we can get pushed through our college system who, who want to go to college, uh, the more informative and electric we're going to get, more sophisticated voters we're going to get. And I think that will result in better policy outcomes at the end of the day. So those to me are the four biggest things, fundamental things we could do to improve and strengthen our democracy. But it's, it's a pretty big fundamental question we've been trying to figure out in this country for over 200 years now um, we're getting better but uh, we, we certainly were no democracy back in uh, 1776 or 1783 when only uh, 
white men could vote on 25 acres. So we're, we're still getting there, but we're getting close. Senator Scott Suravel is also a graduate of James Madison University. I feel like it's a good time to remind people of that. <laughs> Where we have really embraced this idea, Senator, of, of education as a mechanism to strengthen democracy. And, and you said that in a very uh, inspiring way for us here at the Madison Center as we try to achieve that. Uh, we want to thank you so much for uh, the work that you're doing, for taking the time to speak with us and um, and for um, being supportive of the university and of our democracy with your role in the Senate. I'm, I'm honored to uh, serve in the Senate and honored to be part of the JMU caucus. There's now, I think, eight of us. And at one point there was a, out of the, out of the uh, eight leadership positions, there was like three or four of us that went to JMU. And um, one of my colleagues in the Senate, Ryan, Senator Ryan McDougal, and I, we first got our start battling each other in the JMU Student Senate back in 1990. And, and now we're both serving in the Virginia State Senate together. So uh, you never know where uh, your activism at JMU is gonna take you, but appreciate all you guys are doing to uh, increase student interest. You know student government and what was happening to JMU back in the day is what got me interested in the state legislature. So thank you for what you're doing. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Democracy Matters. Editing and production was done by the talented and tenacious Leah Jackson, a senior in the School of Media Arts and Design at James Madison University. Our digital guru, Randy Budnickus, director of digital marketing at JMU, does the syndication for us. Our theme song is Sometimes It Shines by Pictures of the Floating World. Be sure to follow us on social media. You can tweet your questions and ideas to us at JMU Civic, and we'll address them in a future episode. You can also connect and engage with us on Facebook at JMU Civic. Learn more about the Madison Center online at jmu.edu slash civic. Until next time. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.